very excited to be with you this morning. Uh, happy Father's Day. Uh, and we are talking this morning about the best father, our good father, who is not only good to us, but he is a holy father. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, scripture text this morning is found in 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 15. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled to be in your presence, Lord. You are a holy God, Lord, and I just ask that you would speak through me, that your word, Lord, would be edifying and give us insight into uh, more of how we can behold you as our God. In your heavenly name. Amen. One of my all-time favorite books of all time. Okay, if you needed a book for summer reading or anything like that, I'm sure most of you have read it, if not seen the movie, but The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. So good. So good. All right. Uh, in this book, C.S. Lewis portrays Jesus as this lion, Aslan. Early in the book, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, uh, they're trying to describe Aslan to uh, these four children who had stumbled into this magical land of Narnia, uh, and they didn't know who this Aslan was. So Mrs. Beaver starts, and she says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So the children ask the very reasonable question. When I go to the zoo, I am very thankful there is uh, a fence in between me and a lion or any tiger or anything. And they ask, is he a safe lion? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. I love this paradox embodied in Aslan, because on one hand, you have this fierce creature king who is feared by all of his enemies, but even his royal subjects. But on the other hand, he is gentle, kind, and good over those he rules. 
C.S. Lewis succeeds where in history many have failed to grasp the holiness and goodness and goodness of God as two sides of the same coin. Here I have a piece of paper. I hope you can see it. I tried to find a black one. I couldn't find one. This is blue. On one side we have the holiness of God, representing the holiness of God. Okay? Uh, on the other side we have goodness, representing the goodness of God. Okay? Uh, both are clear attributes of who God is. Right? Uh, so, in these two things, though, okay, we see that God is, uh, God says he is holy, and therefore we are to be holy. We see that he is good, and we see that his actions are good, and we see this in the very beginning in Genesis, where he speaks things into being and says they are good. Both are attributes of God, and yet we have a tendency to focus on one more than the other. When we focus on one more than the other, we get a tainted picture of who God is. You can't have one without the other. Here's what I'm getting at. Back in the medieval age, churches were covered in murals depicting the final judgment in vivid detail. At best, God appeared distant, someone at the top of the picture, at worst, he appeared cruel and vindictive. But in the last hundred years or so, perhaps unique to our history, our culture has turned this on its head. Now we view God as indulgent, benign, and even tame. What we see in our culture is what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible. You take out scripture passages that do not fit into one's understanding of who God is or should be. It's as if all that is left for God to do is lovingly accept us for who we are and forgive us like an indulgent grandparent. But the true God, the one who is the creator of all things, the one revealed in scripture, he is not tame. Our text comes right after the civil war is over between Saul's son Ishbosheth and David. God's anointed king David is in the midst of rebuilding Israel. And the neighboring country, the Philistines, uh, they don't like that Israel is becoming stronger. So they make war against Israel. The Philistines attack and are trying to hunt down David. And after David consults the Lord on what he should do, God comes up with an amazing battle plan. I'm going to do everything for you. So, and not just once, but twice. And this is the description David gives of what went on on the battlefield. God going before the Israelites and King David. This is found in 2 Samuel 5:20. The Lord has burst forth upon my enemies in front of me like a bursting flood. Okay, when I first read this verse, I thought of a sandcastle just being crushed by some waves. Has that ever happened to you guys? Has to me, my best castle of all time. Uh, in the summer of 2005, my siblings and I, we had built uh, an intricate, an amazing sandcastle uh, in the summer on uh, Virginia Beach. And we spent a few hours on it. And uh, it was a little too close to the water. And so by the t- when the tide came in, uh, it took it away, crushed it. It was gone. And this is what I imagine happened to the Philistines, just like my castle had no chance against the waves of the Atlantic. The Philistines had no chance against God. 
and his omnipotence. The Philistines discovered that God is dangerous. The living God, the God of Israel, fights for his people and all is well. Except that God's people are also about to discover that God is dangerous. We see David and the Israelites are overjoyed with the Lord's victory. And David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to his city, the city of Jerusalem. The Ark has resided in Curious Jerusalem for the past 20 years. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant represents God's very presence. And this is how it is described in verses 2 of chapter 6. The Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. First, we are told the ark is called by the name. The name of God represents God himself, particularly his character and his glory. Then second, we are told that God is enthroned between the cherubim. The lid of the ark had carved cherubim on either side. So the ark was also a symbol of the throne or reign of God. It was the place where the throne of God met the earth. So here's David and his 30,000 chosen men escorting the ark on a cart to, to Jerusalem. God had found favor with his people in giving them victory over his enemies. All is going well as they are marching on when all of a sudden the oxen stumble, the cart jolts, the ark shifts, and Uzzah reaches out to catch the ark. And this is what we read in verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. It's a shocking moment. And instinctively, we sympathize with Uzzah. Well, what what should he have done? Should he have let it fall? How could God possibly blame someone and punish them so fiercely for what appeared to be an act of Uzzah protecting the ark. God's anger burst forth against Uzzah and his people just like it had the Philistines. And this is why. Uzzah and his family were Kohathites, and they were chosen by God to look after the holy things in the tabernacle, like the ark. Uzzah should have been well aware of God's warning to the Kohathites found in Numbers 4.20, which reads... The Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things even for a moment, or they will die. So before the Kohathites could even think about moving the ark, the priests had to cover it first with a curtain and then put it in a leather case. And even wrapped in the curtain in a leather case, they could not even touch it. But they were instructed to carry it using special poles. And upon further study, we find there should only be six carts assigned to the work of the temple. But none were given to the Kohathites for the purpose of moving the ark, no doubt to prevent this very, very scenario from happening. But God's specific instructions are ignored, and Uzzah suffers the consequences. Just like the Philistines, the Israelites underestimated the holiness of God and how dangerous it can be. This was not the only time either. Back in 1 Samuel 6, the Israelites rejoicing and excited to get the ark back from the Philistines uh, peeked inside, and God immediately struck down 70 men. 
In their mourning, they said in verse 20, chapter 6, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one. Even though the Israelites were the chosen people of God, even they are not exempt from the wrath of God when entering his holy presence unclean. God's holy presence is dangerous to anything and everything that is not holy itself. Dangerous to his enemies and even dangerous to his own people. Our God is a holy God. And as R.C. Sproul puts it, he's not just our holy God or our holy, holy God. He's our holy, holy, holy God. Just think. Nowhere in scripture do we see the same word repeated three times in the worship or description of who God is. We don't read God is love, 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 or that God is mercy, 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 or that he's just, just, just. But what we do read in Isaiah 6 is that our God is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. David, afraid of the Lord that day, wondered, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? There's an answer to David's question, but we need to feel the full force of the question. How can God ever come to us? How can God ever live with us and us with such a holy God? God is so holy that sin is burned up in his presence. It's like we are ragdolls soaked in the flammable liquid of our sin. And God is a raging fire. If God comes to us, then we will be consumed by the Holy Spirit of his presence. This is one of the greatest tensions in all of scripture. You can't live with God as you are, and you can't live without him. We can't live with God because his holiness is too dangerous for our unclean souls. But we can't live without him either. For he is the source of all that is good. So what if I just left it at that? Knowing that the wages of our sin and impurity is death. There would be no reason to sing the last hymn. All of us would just leave here with our heads down low, but we know better, don't we? Our God is good. And he has made a way. He does not leave this tension in scripture unresolved. For our God is not only a holy God, but he is a good and loving God. Who in his great wisdom and grace designed a good and perfect plan to reconcile us back to himself. So the good news is that there is an answer to the haunting question in verse 9. How can the presence of the Lord ever come to us? We see a glimpse of it in the story as we read on. David and the Israelites again try to bring the Ark of Jerusalem, and this time they succeed. What's the difference? Well, there's no mention of a cart, which is good. uh, But there is a more significant difference, and it's found in verses 13 and 17. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he being David, sacrificed a bull, and a fattened calf, and then verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Did you catch it? The main difference in the second tent is they are offering sacrifices. 
Something dies in root both times. The first time, Uzzah must pay the price. The second time, it is animals, sacrificed in place of the people. The first journey starts with celebration and ends in death and fear. The second starts with death, a sacrifice, but ends in blessing. And as soon as the ark is in the tent David has prepared, this is what David does. And I love this picture found in verses 18 and 19. David blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. God has come to his people and the people eat a meal in his presence. Just think, this is the whole goal of scripture. For us to eat a meal in the presence of God um, is the ultimate sign of our reconciliation with God. In every single culture, sharing a meal, uh, eating a meal with one another is a sign of friendship and community. God's plan of reconciliation and dwelling among his people was not only limited, though, to Israel. For back in verse 10, we see a glimpse of what God intended. David is too afraid of bring, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, so he brings it to be stored in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. A Gittite was someone from the Philistine city of Gath, who, I mean, the popular person, David, um, David killed uh, Goliath. Uh, who was from Gath as well. Obed-Edom means servant of Edom, Edom being a Gentile nation. So this man, Obed-Edom, was most likely a Gentile, him and his family, and some sort of servant to David. And in verse 11 it says this, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. God blessed this Gentile family, not an Israelite family. Gentile family. Not because they deserved it, but because it pleased God to dwell with this family and bless them. This is but a foreshadowing of what was going to take place at the cross. The good plan God designed before the foundation of the world, knowing that sin would enter through Adam and Eve, was to send his one and only perfect and holy son, Jesus, born to save the people of God from their sinfulness and also to extend this undeserved blessing to all nations, to all people. God is the source of all that is good. And to teach this important lesson, God would eventually abandon his stubborn people in judgment upon them. The land is laid waste and the population is taken into exile. The lesson is clear. The food that you eat, the sun in the sky, the laughter you enjoy, the land in which you live, they all come from God. God is well pleased to meet our physical needs, but what he desires most is to fulfill all of our spiritual needs. And God's great intent for his people throughout the story of the Bible is not to destroy the Israelites or any other people, but to make a way for them to be reconciled to him in order that they may receive his Holy Spirit and ultimately dwell with him in his new heaven and new earth. So the answer answer to the question, how can the presence of the Lord ever 
come to us is this, through sacrifice. And the sacrifices of David and the Israelites, they point ultimately forward to the atoning blood of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. As God's wrath was, had burst forth against the Philistines and Uzzah and the Israelites for their unrighteousness, at the cross, God's wrath burst forth against his own son for our unrighteousness. Can you not see that God has never wanted to withhold his goodness from any of his people, Gentile or Israelite? It's the exact opposite. He was willing to pay the highest price of sending his one and only son in order to purchase the debt of our sin in order that we might experience his goodness for eternity. God is holy, and now we are made holy through faith alone in Jesus. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about from our scripture reading earlier. We now have a confidence to enter into the holy place because we are finally cleansed of all of our sin, washed by the blood of Christ. One of the greatest tensions in all of scripture is once and for all resolved by the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's presence is barred by his holiness, which we now can enter by faith, wrapped in the righteousness and holiness of Christ. By no means does this mean that we can now uh, take God's presence lightly. But in seeing what we were saved from and now blessed with should cause us to be more in awe of the grace and love shown to us every day. Hebrews 12, in reflecting on what Jesus had accomplished on the cross, reminds us how we should approach our holy and good God. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. No, he isn't safe, but we worship a good God who has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love, the mercy, the grace that you show us by cleaning us. People who were once unclean enemies to you, we now can enter into your presence. And not only as clean human beings or holy human beings, but Lord, you have adopted us as sons and daughters. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Lord, the highest price to be paid. We thank you so much, and Lord, we rejoice and we worship you this day. Help us to adore you all the more. In your heavenly name, amen.